Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And if you've been with us or maybe you're just visiting, we are in the book of Joshua. And that's on page 181, I believe, of the, of your, of the Blue Bible there in your pew. Go ahead and open to the book of Joshua. We'll be in chapter 5. Just by way of reminder, um, as, we, as we come to this book, um, where does this book fit in the, the, the overall story of, of Scripture? And just a, just a brief reminder that at this stage of Israel's life, I mean, Israel's been around for many, 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 many generations at this point, and um, they are the beholders of, of these promises of this God named Yahweh, the one true God. And two of those promises have been fulfilled. A third one, which is to receive this land that he has promised them, has not. And the book of Joshua is really about that one thing, about them receiving that land, about God making good on his promises. And uh, so that's, that's where we are, and that's what the book of Joshua really sets out to, to show us. And through that, we see very clearly uh, God's love for his people um, and uh, grace that sustains his people. Um, and it, it prepares us for Jesus when Jesus shows up in the New Testament so well. This morning here in chapter 5, we come to a very interesting uh, stage of this book where they have crossed the Jordan and they're about to go in and take out... Uh, drive out the inhabitants, which we will look at next week. So again, next week's the week where we're going to uh, talk about the, the, the conquest and uh, hopefully answer a lot of the questions you might have about this. Um, but this is interesting because, you know, if you are a military person um, and you cross over that water and into enemy-occupied territory, you're thinking, we have got to move, right? We have got to get, get on it, get to the enemy before they get to us. And that is not what happens, if you are part of Israel, uh, God's people, they actually stop and they circumcise themselves. So let's just talk about that, okay? Let's just own up to how strange that is. And this is, seems to be the most foolish thing that could ever happen uh, in, in a military, um, you know, endeavor. But that would mean that the priority then is to just destroy, which is not God's priority. His priority is to communicate and demonstrate to his people that he loves them, that he's with them. And that is the purpose of what they're doing. So I want you to have that in mind as we read God's word found in chapter 5, verses 2. And we're going to read all the way to verse 12. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and he circumcised the sons of Israel at uh, Gibbeth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Uh, All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. 
When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places uh, in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Verse 10, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on the very on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, I pray that you would graciously give us your spirit and that you would do a miracle this morning, and by miracle, uh, that you would soften our hardened hearts, that we would hear and see things otherwise we could, we could not, that your word would go out into good soil and produce a fruit, that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. We're going to talk this morning about obedience, and as a parent, um, it seems like we're always talking about obedience. And maybe if you're a parent as well, uh, you find yourself talking about obedience as well. Um, phrases like, please obey. Um, or maybe, you know, something like, please clean your room, throw this stuff away. Our house is not a dumpster. You hear that a lot in our house. And then at some point, why am I screaming, right? <laughs> obedience is a big deal. Uh, we have four girls. Uh, and there really kind of are two different types of obedience around my house. I don't know if this is true for you. Um, but there's, you know, I'll just do it because I agree with you, obedience. Um, and then there's, you know, the real obedience you're looking for, the heartfelt I love you obedience, uh, which we see every once in a while. But, but what do I mean by the, the type of obedience where, you know, I just, I just agree with you. I could give my girls maybe a couple of instructions like, hey, we need you to clean up the kitchen counter. Uh, on the floor, because of all Play-Doh that you got out, we need you to clean that up. Uh, so could you obey and do that? Uh, we need you to uh, take out the trash. Trash is full. It's part of being in the family. Would you mind obeying and doing that? Um, and also, I need you to pick up all of your clothes in your room uh, and hang them up. It's the ones that are clean. Would you mind doing that? And they might do all three of those things. But, but you know, Why? Because what, what I have found is that a lot of times that obedience, the, the reasons they do those things, is just because they agree with me. Like, yeah, you know what? I need to go clean up that plate because if I leave it out, it'll dry up and we'll be able to use it. So I'll do it. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't throw anything in the trash either because it's full. So I guess, yeah, it's probably a good idea. I'll, I'll go ahead and empty the trash. But I'm not going to touch my room. Uh, I don't really think those clothes need to be hung up. They're fine where they are. So I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. And so you know, if, if this scenario at all is ringing true for your household or even your own life experience, then maybe, you know, if, if it's not, I apologize. But the question that, you know, like sort of paint that, is this obedience? And the answer is no, it's not, right? At least not the kind that parents love from their child. They have just decided where they agree with me, Play-Doh, taking out the trash, and where they do not, all right? And what they really want to do and what they don't want to do, which is why one pastor writes, obedience, true obedience is most clearly on display and how we respond not in the midst of agreement, but actually in the midst of disagreement. It is easy to obey when you agree 
with that person or what is being asked of you. But what if you don't agree? What if you are almost certain that your clothes do not need to be hung up? Like you're, you're pretty sure they don't and you disagree. What do you do with that? What causes somebody then to obey in the face of disagreement? When they don't feel like doing what they are asked because God calls us to a lot of things. Jesus calls us to, if we're going to follow him, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And in that process, he may call us to a lot of difficult things. What if you don't agree with those things? What drives us to that? And what I want us to see this morning is that what drives true obedience, not just for us as we follow Jesus, but for Israel in the Old Testament here in Joshua, is knowing that you are loved unconditionally. What drives obedience is knowing you are loved unconditionally. See, we we might think it's the other way around. What will drive obedience is if I love that person or if, if I love God enough. But your love for God just like everybody else, is what? It's going to wane. And what, what God shows us here on the pages of Joshua, for Israel especially, is that what's going to drive them into faithfulness, what's going to make them obey, not just obey because they agree with God, but heartfelt, I want to give you my life obedience, what he wants from us, is if they know that they are loved unconditionally. And that has been his mission up to this point. And it will continue to be his mission as well. And this is where Israel is as we turn to chapter 5. It is a new day. It is a new chapter in their life. And obedience, which is almost synonymous with faithfulness here for them, to God, is about to look like receiving a land that has been promised to them by driving out its inhabitants. How are they going to do this? Are they just going to get strong and tough it out? No. Love is going to drive their obedience. They're going to know that God is with them, that he loves them. It is the unconditional love of God that drives their faithfulness, their obedience. And the same is true for us. And I want us to see that in this chapter especially. As we look at the three things on your bulletin, um, that is uh, what disobedience brings to God's people. All right? Um, <clears throat> what, dis- what disobedience brings to God's people. What grace then establishes for God's people for now and forever. And then what obedience, obedience then brings to God's people in this chapter. Okay? So let's look at those things in order there. The first thing that we read here, this first one, what, what disobedience brings to God's people. The first thing that we read here in verse 2, if you have the, 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 uh, the chapter 5 open, uh, is that the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Um, and we should ask, why a second time? I mean, did the first time not take... Who's doing this? Uh, maybe that's what your question is as you read this. But that is not what is meant by a second time here. Um, what is meant by a second time is that the whole ordinance of the covenant, which is God's promise to his people, needs to be given again because the first one has been broken. The first one has been broken. How was it broken? Israel 
the former generation, the, the parents of this generation, we'll call this the wilderness generation, okay? The, the former generation, the wilderness generation was unfaithful and did not obey the voice of the Lord. That's what the text says, verse 6 there, that the generation that God brought out of Egypt, that's the wilderness generation, they all died because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing in milk and honey. In other words... Parents of this generation broke the vows of their promise right after God had freed them, had done one of the most miraculous things ever, had freed them from slavery from Egypt. And God swore that as punishment for their disobedience, they wouldn't see the land as we just read, but instead would die out here in the wilderness. This all takes place, though, back in Numbers 14. And we've got to visit this. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. But we've got to go back here. We've got to read this for a second. Because you, you don't understand. You can't get into Joshua without having the history behind us. And so De- Deuteronomy 14 is important. This is a, roughly not even two years after they have seen Moses lead the people out of Egypt. They've seen the Red Sea parted. Like all these things, we, would, we, we say, if I'd, God would just show me this stuff, I'd believe. And here's this generation that saw it, that was with them. And this is what they said. So Numbers 14, two people, Caleb and Joshua, have come back from spying out the land. And they're like, we can do this. God is with us. We can do this. And here's the people's response. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. They're not weeping because... I don't know, they're, they're weeping because this is, they do not want to do this. They are opposed to this. And all the people, the text says, is Deuteronomy 14, of Israel grumbled against Moses. The whole congregation said to them, would, would that we had died in Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? They, are, they would rather have death than trust God and go into this land. Why is the Lord, verse 3, bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay. See, Israel isn't just disagreeing with Moses or Caleb or Joshua here. They are fundamentally opposed to them, which is the same thing as being opposed to God himself. This isn't, oh, I have some doubts about what you're asking me to do. I have some doubts about coming into this land. It's, I don't want to have anything to do with you, unfaithfulness, disobedience. That's, that's what is here. That's what's in the backstory uh, that, that has happened before Israel shows up here in Joshua 5. That's the type of disobedience we are dealing with in which, with which is an act of being unfaithful. Back in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 14, just listen to this. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes And they said to all of the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. (laughs) It's the same stuff. And here's what he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So what was their response? They're going to kill them. 
All right. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to say that the reason that, that, that their response is this and not obedience is because they don't believe God is with them. They don't believe that God loves them for whatever reason. But if this is your response, is to pick up stones and want to stone God's representative, right? Which is essentially, this is what you're, throw, you're throwing a stone at him. That's not a really good idea. To bring harm against Moses is to bring harm against God. And any disobedience is bad in the face of God. But I'm wanting to show you over and over that Israel grew opposed to this God. They wanted a new leader. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Again, they would rather be slaves than to belong to this God. The closest we can get to this, you have to really get through some of the English translation here, is to to understand what is happening, is to look at just a marriage today. And to say that, look, in any kind of marriage, if vows in that marriage are broken, then what the marriage is, is broken too. And there's ways to repair that marriage. Absolutely. Like there's forgiveness, there's repentance, there's mercy and grace, and there's counseling, and there's all those things that we can do here. But when you are in a relationship with a holy God, that disobedience demands something. And it demands death. More on that next week. That is the deal here. Because... Sin, disobedience, is fundamentally opposed to a holy God. They cannot be together. And therefore, it must go away. It must be dissolved. It is broken. That is why when we get on to chapter 5 that we read that they had to be circumcised a second time. It's because that first covenant was broken. And what this disobedience will lead to for that generation, the wilderness generation, will be death. If we pick back up in Deuteronomy 14, verse 10, just listen. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with, with the pestilence and disinherit or cut, cut them off. I'll disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. What God describes in verse 12 are just a couple of the curses that you will find in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, which you should, I'm sure you will read at lunch today. Go read all those. But what he's saying to them is that the, this, was the, this was the vow. These were the blessings and the curses that came with this covenant. You've broken them and said, this is, I have, this is what has to happen. Death must come of you. And we, we read further there that it wasn't just sort of once. He says, God says, they have put me to the test ten times and have not obeyed my voice. This is, this is ongoing infidelity in a marriage at this point. Which is not a marriage. And so it's broken and the vows must be renewed a second time. That's where we are in Joshua. The second generation is not circumcised because the vows of the first generation were broken. And they, that, gen, that wilderness generation will not see this promised land. They will die there. And God will wait till they die before he brings this other generation in because that is the cost of disobedience. And it's not because God is some monster here. Let's go ahead and hedge that off for a second. It's not because he's unfair. Right? 
It's because this is, this is what disobedience truly brings us. It brings death. Israel is not dealing with a demigod here. He's not de- they are not dealing with a fake God. They are dealing with a holy God. A God of all creation. Not a God who parts seas because he created them. He can control them. And what they are learning and relearning on the shore here is that relating to a holy God is dangerous business. And I think that's, that's a good word for us this morning in the culture and in the air that we breathe today where it is just so easy to just go about our lives and the indifference that we have and to not stop and recognize that, wait a minute here, the God that we follow, the God that we worship is holy. It's holy. And that has massive implications for how I obey and what I do. But at every turn, though, in spite of this, we see that this God is not giving his people what they truly deserve. And that should, like, the grace in this text is the fact that he's allowing them to be circumcised a second time. And that doesn't sound like a lot of grace. (laughs) But it is. And you'll see here in just a second. But at every turn, we see this God not giving his people what they truly deserve which is death. Instead, we see him offering something else. We see him wanting to renew the vows and to be married again to this unfaithful spouse. And friends, that is grace. And this leads to the second point, what grace establishes with God's people. And it is always grace that establishes anything with his people, but specifically relationship. What grace establishes with God's people is relationship. If we are thinking of this covenant between God and Israel as a marriage, and we should, and Israel has constantly been unfaithful and disobeyed the terms of that relationship, covenant, promise, and they have, then God has every right to what? Cut them off. Disinherit them. To execute his judgment based on the terms of the covenant. No one would disagree with that, I don't think. The only chance Israel has at this point of belonging to God then is if he, what, decides to postpone the full disobedience, the full consequences of Israel breaking the covenant and instead renew the promise before them. In other words, God would have to agree to remain married to this unfaithful spouse. And that's what he does here. Why? Because God loves them. It's the same thing. He loves them for no other reason he loves them. It's not because they're better. It's not because they're more lovable. They're not. (laughs) It's because he loves them. And it's over and over and over he is trying to, to, to drill this into their hearts. That nothing then will get in the way of fulfilling his promises to his people because it is grace that reestablishes the covenant, the promise. It reestablishes the relationship that has been broken because of our disobedience, that has been broken because of our sin. And this is good news for us because it's grace that reestablishes everything here, not just for Israel, but for us. Nothing will get in the way of this. Back in Joshua verse 6, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, the Lord swore to them, this is the wilderness generation, that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing in milk and honey. It's kind of a tongue-tied phrase there. It sounds like, almost like he's contradicting himself. But the Lord swore that he would not let the wilderness generation see the land that he had sworn to their fathers. God is simply saying, look, the wilderness generation, the one that disobeyed, which everybody's disobeyed, by the way. But the one who, the one, the one who he, he executed judgment against, they are not going to get in the way of his promises being fulfilled. Which is to say that sin, like anything, everything that you can think of. 
is not going to stop God from fulfilling his promises. And this is encouraging on so many levels because it says that, 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 that there's nothing that you can do. It's going to keep it. It's going to get in the way. You, you cannot be involved. And we'll look at that here in a second. But, but I, I think there's, 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 there's a word here as well for us as we kind of consider you know, God at work. What is he doing in my life? What is he doing in this church? What is he doing in this city? And what is getting in the way of that? And this is not to excuse sin, but friends, first and foremost, on the pages here of Joshua 5, the fact that he is giving this land to this generation is a testimony to the fact that nothing will ever get in the way of God's plans, what he has for you, what he has for his people, because it is dependent solely on the grace of God. You are to receive that. You are to rest in that. And, 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 and you already get a taste for it, right? You already get a taste. If that is true, I want to obey. That is the unconditional love that drives obedience for us. But we see that here. Again, we get back to, to Joshua here. In this ritual that we would call circumcision and Passover, what are those? Just briefly, okay? What are those? Uh, circumcision is the covenant marking that the males of Israel by eight days of age were, to, were given to signify who they belong to, which is Yahweh. This sign literally marked you out as God's people, as being other than any other people group. Think of a wedding ring. And its significance. The ring does what? It tells you and others that you belong both in a marriage and to someone in marriage. That's what this does. We do baptism, thankfully, today. It's a different sign. We'll get to that in a second. New covenant. But like a wedding ring, circumcision was also a metaphor. And this is important. So if you're Looking at your phone, put your phone down, dial in here. It's a metaphor that as God's people, if you kept the terms of this covenant, of this marriage, if you will, blessing will come to you. But if you do not keep the terms of this covenant, if you disobey, if you are unfaithful, then you will too be cut off. I will disinherit you. You see how the metaphor works? See the sign? And they would, they would carry this sign with them, both marked out to tell them whose they were. Who do I belong to? But also remind themselves to keep the terms of that covenant that grace has brought together. That to not obey, not to not respond to this grace, this love, to break, to break the terms would mean that I would be cut off from God's presence. And then after the sign of circumcision was given and God's people were thus marked out, they could then take what? The Passover meal which was the meal that the previous generation was given. If you remember back in Egypt before they left, they were told you know, to, 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 to eat unleavened bread and a lot of other things. But the most important was, was to take the blood of a lamb and put that blood above the doorpost so that when God's judgment came through because of the disobedience of, of Egypt, that you, that, that you would be atoned for. That that blood would signify that something else took the cost here and my judgment will go over you. My judgment will pass 
over you. That's atonement. That is, something has to cover the sins of the people. And Passover showed us that for now, it'll be the blood of a lamb. But notice that even here, and this is important too, God doesn't just say, hey, look, it's okay, Israel. It's okay. Like Your sins are not that bad. Your sins are not that bad compared to Egypt's sins. And so don't even worry about atoning for them. Don't even worry about putting blood over the doorposts because I will recognize the evil Egyptians as opposed to the good Israelites. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, if you want to live, you must do this. You must be atoned for. You must put this blood over your door, doorpost. Why? Because I am holy. And you are not. I am clean and you are not. Your sin and disobedience deserves death. And the only way you are going to survive my wrath is by the blood of another. What better living metaphor do we need here to set us up for Jesus, right? So to stop on the shore of the Jordan and to receive the sign and to take this Passover meal, it was huge. It was God saying, we are still married. We are still married. You belong to me and I will provide atonement for your disobedience, for your unfaithfulness. Because what you need more than anything else, and I, what you need more than anything else, what this says to Israel is you, you need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. And, and the only way that you understand that you have that forgiveness is if you see my love, the unconditional love that I have for you in my grace. Which is why you're here in the first place. That's what these things did for them. God is jealous, jealous for his people. He longs for them. He is the one true husband. And like any other good spouse, he longs for his people to be faithful. But for faithfulness and obedience to happen, Israel must know that they are loved. And guess what happens when a people turn and accept and trust in a love like this. It drives them to the bosom of that good spouse. In other words, it drives them to obedience. It drives them to that person, to want to be with that person, with this God, to want to follow and trust and serve and love the other. No one in any relationship that any of us have, no one Parent, child, husband, wife, sibling, friend, runs in the direction of condemnation. Right? No, nobody thrives and runs and gives their heart over in the direction of condemnation. You might obey, right? You, you might go through the motions. You might, you might do it just because you agree. But you will not give your heart to that person. If all that you are receiving on the other side is condemnation. This is why grace is so important. Grace is what we are going to. That is the only thing that in our obedience that will change our hearts to give ourselves over to God freely. It is that unconditional love and it's that love that drives obedience in any relationship, period. What happens when the ceremony to renew this marriage is offered by God? Israel accepts. They're not just going through the motions here. They're doing it. They're, they're, they're parking themselves on the shores of, of enemy-inhabited land and doing the, something to the most vulnerable part of their bodies, to be frank, 
putting them in the most vulnerable state ever. Why? Because they, they are trusting. They are beginning to believe that, that, that God loves them. And the mark of that love is their obedience to him. And what happens when God's people just begin to obey? This gets to the last point. It brings blessing. It brings blessing. This is the best part of the text here. What, what obedience always brings to God's people is blessing. And it may not be in this lifetime, but certainly in the lifetime to come. So let me be clear about that. But verse 10 and 12 tells us three times. And you know, if you've been around, you know, Bible, if you read the Bible, if, somebody, if something is said twice as you read it, you know to sort of stop for a second and look at it and, um, you know, wake up a little bit. Okay, they said it twice. But if they say it three times, it's kind of important. Look what's said here three times, verse 10 to 12. And they ate the fruit of the land. So for almost a throwaway comment, it doesn't really do anything for me. And they ate the fruit of the land. When the scriptures repeat itself, you know it's important in this way. Dr. J. Sklar says the significance of this is that already Israel is enjoying the blessings of the covenant by eating the eating in the land. That is, they haven't even received it in full yet there. They haven't even received it in full yet. But here they are already enjoying the blessing of the land, which is a product of their obedience to God. What God is underscoring is not this. You better get your act together because I am holy. God is not underscoring that. He's not underscoring uh, or saying to them, you better prepare yourself before you enter this land. You better prepare yourself for battle because I don't know if you have what it takes to win. That is not what he's underscoring. Instead, God is shouting, look at what I want to give you. Look at what I want to give you. Look at what, what, what will happen if you just obey me, if you trust that I am with you, if you trust what, that I love you. They're already tasting the the fruit of the land. God is like a parent who is so overjoyed uh, at the smallest bit of repentance and obedience by his people that he is willing to stop everything and throw the biggest party for the one who has returned. Wait a second. That sounds familiar. In my thinking about this, look, look, I think of potty training children as it is just the worst. Isn't this the worst? And if you, if, if you, you know, nothing is more stressful and frustrating or makes you just want to give up as a parent than the process of potty training a child until, and this is the, this is the beauty of it, until you learn how to do it right. And what does that mean? Until you learn how to incentivize, right? And, and, and you know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Great. So, you know, for example, if they, if they just make it to the bathroom, because their bodies tell them to, we, we got to throw a party here, right? Even if their outfit is destroyed in the process, we are going to, we are going to throw a party. We're going to break out the candy. We're going to get some ice cream. We're, where do you want to go eat tonight? Somebody get Gigi on the phone. We got to tell her all about this, right? You, you celebrate the smallest act of obedience. That is what God is doing in one sense here. Just trust me, trust me, renew this vow with me. I will be with you. I love you. Look. And they ate the fruit of the land. And they ate the fruit of the land. And they ate the fruit of the land. Look at what I want to give you if you will just obey me. If you will just know that I love you. Obedience for God's people always brings blessing here. Every time. And some of that blessing though, as I said earlier, may not be experienced in this lifetime But obedience to God always brings blessing to us. 
But this, this, this gets to the why God is like this. I mean, this is amazing what he's trying to show his people. But why is he like this? Why is he able to extend grace like this to an unfaithful spouse in, in this way? And it's not because Israel finally gets it, friends. It's not because Israel is finally, you know, who they're supposed to be in every respect. And it's not because... As we'll see next week, God has lowered his standard that disobedience or sin doesn't really matter to him. No, instead, God is able to be this gracious in the face of unfaithfulness because he knows that it won't be Israel who will have to be cut off. You see that? Like he, he, he knows that it, it won't be this people who will have to be cut off and cast out permanently for their disobedience and sins. It won't be them that takes the full wrath of God and it won't be the Canaanites either. He knows that it will be somebody else. It will be Jesus. It will be Jesus, God's son, who will be what? Cut off from him. That's what the cross is. That is, that, that is the scandal of it. That is, that is why it is so dark and awful. Because the, the innocent one takes the punishment for the, for the disobedient one. And this is how he knows. This is, this is how he knows he's allowing. This is why it's all grace, guys. Who will experience the fullness of God's wrath in the end? And it won't be them. It will be Jesus. This is why sin and death or anything cannot stop God's plans. It cannot stop his plans from him making good on his promises. Jesus is going to take the judgment for his people. Jesus will make it possible, not just for Israel, but for us as well, to participate in covenant renewal. Jesus will make it possible for unfaithful people like you and me to stand at the ultimate wedding when he takes us as his bride. And that's grace. The unconditional love of God. And when you see that, when you see that Jesus was cut off for you, does that drive you to indifference? Does that drive you to just sort of, well, I'll obey where I agree? Or does it say, does it say, as you look at him hanging there for you, I want to give my life to you. That this love drives me to want to say, I will follow you. Here I am. Whatever it is that you might call me to, because there is no greater love than giving your life for someone else. This love, the unconditional love of God for us, is always what drives us to obey and to be faithful. What will this look like for Israel in the weeks to come? And we've we've got to go there. This will look like being strong and courageous. You read this back in chapter 1. Did you notice how many times it was said there in the first 12, 13 verses? Three times. Israel, right off the pages, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Be strong and courageous. How are they going to do that? that? What is that? That's being obedient. It's taking the land. How are they going to, how are they going to be obedient? They're just going to try harder? What is God saying to them? You're going to be strong and courageous because of grace. Because you're going to remember why you're here in the first place. You're going to remember who's with you. You're going to remember who loves you. That's how you're going to be strong and courageous. Because you're going to know that God is with you. That he's the one fighting for you. It's the same thing when we get to Jesus on the cross. How are you going to be strong and courageous? Are you going to try harder? No, grace is going going to send you into mission as obedient people, followers of Jesus Christ. This is why in the Old Testament, fear, not the kind that you get when you watch a scary movie, but fear and disobedience... 
that or fear is disobedience. It is unfaithfulness. Because for Israel to fear is to not believe that he's with them. Okay? You see, whatever, whatever, whatever area that we're being called to, right? Jesus calls us to be strong and courageous too. The circumstances are a lot different, trust me, than, than for Israel. Right? But the means are still the same. He calls you to follow him, to deny yourself. To take up your cross, to be strong and courageous in that way. How are you going to do that? Are you just going to pull up your bootstraps and, and try, to get, try to get better? No, you will fail miserably. It's the same thing. How are we going to do that? His grace. We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to see Jesus dying for us, being cut off for us. What we did not deserve. Getting what we did not deserve. Knowing that he loves us in that way. It's going to remind us of that. And it's going to send us into mission. It's going to cause us to want to give our hearts over to this God. Because love, the unconditional love, is what drives obedience. I'll end with this. Uh, there's a podcast that a friend of mine was listening to. And he told the story. And as I was listening to it, I just thought this is exactly, it's exactly what's going on in Joshua. The podcast is called uh, Ear Hustle. And the whole premise of the, of the podcast um, is... Uh, there's two hosts, um, and it takes place uh, in San Quentin, the prison in San Quentin. And the whole premise of the show is why do some inmates get out of prison and stay out versus others who get out of prison and come right back in again? And when the podcast started, he was saying when the podcast started, there was a, there was a female who was on the outside, and there was a, a, a male prisoner inside that she would go in and talk with and do the research and that kind of thing. And um, after about four years of the show, the male got released uh, served his his, um, his sentence and decided to come on the show as well. So I had to find somebody else uh, inside. And in this season, you hear him talking a lot more about, about what it was like in there, and and you know, and even him addressing the question of what was it, what 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 do you think it is that's causing you to not have to go back? Because five people left with him, and three are still out doing life, and two have gone back to prison. And here's what he said. He just said, and this is, he's not a Christian. This is not necessarily anything spiritual. It's just what he said. He said, when I was in prison, all I could think about was being with my wife because there is no one who loves me more. He says, all I wanted to do was get out, was to be with her, and the tragedy he thought of all the time wasted spent in this prison when I could have been with her. Of those five people, three of those people found found somebody that loved them. What he's saying here is, 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 is what's driving his obedience, what's, what's keeping him, whether it's faithfulness in marriage, but keeping him out of prison even, is that he's loved. And there's no question about that. There's no question about that for him. The same is true for us. If knowing that about some spouse can cause this type of obedience, this type of life, this type of living, this type of faithfulness, how much more when we look at the cross and see Jesus and his love for us, how much more can that, should that, would that drive our obedience, our faithfulness to follow him wherever he calls us? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning as we think about this confusing scene on the pages of Joshua, as we see a people preparing for war to stop and to do what they do. And, and what is that? It is, it is, a, it is a remarriage. It, it is a, a, a picture 
of your commitment to them. And I pray that as we look at that, we would, we would see Jesus already in his commitment to us as he dies for us. As he gives his life for us. And would that love then be the engine of what drives us to obedience, to faithfulness. To give our hearts to this God. And not just follow because, well, it's agreeable to us. But that we would learn what it means to be in relationship with you in this way. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.